Welcome to the Tweets and Tonic Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Asbury. Political hot topics are intertwined in every aspect of our lives, from your streaming channels to your favorite sports teams and even in your pulpits. If you are looking for a cultural commentary on those infamous 280 characters brought to you by the Little Blue Bird, pour yourself a drink because this is the podcast for you. The way our show works is that we will take 10 tweets and break them down and share our thoughts and opinions. All right. Welcome back to Tweets and Tonic. Just to preface the show, Aaron nearly died drinking something incorrectly a moment ago, so he sounds a little bit like Barry White. This is the quiet storm. (laughs) All right, so we took a bit of a break. Uh, We were here in... June with Jalen, and then we took a break, now we're back. And better. And there's been a lot that's happened. Yep. We still have coronavirus. No, we don't have the coronavirus. No, not us, God willing. We did just get back from vacation, so we'll see. But yeah, the world is still pretty much a dumpster fire, but we're here to talk about it. So I'm going to kick it off with our first tweet that's from Seth Haynes, and it is... Name one song that best describes 2020. You want to go first or you want me to go first? I'm feeling a combination of MC Hammer's Can't Touch This or Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. Um, Streets on Fire by Lupe Fiasco. Yeah, Aaron, of course, has something deep and meaningful. Well, the song, basically, if you listen to it, it sounds like what's going on right now with all the propaganda you know, with all the the people dying and the mixed messages on, you know, what's the best way to be safe. That song pretty much epitomizes what's going on right now. Speaking of what's going on right now, obviously COVID-19, or as my mom calls it, COVAN, (laughs) is uh, still running rampant, especially here in our home state. But um, Deion Sanders, primetime, he had a little something this week that he had to say about a lot of the NFL players opting out of their season. I think it ended up at around 70 players opted out. But he tweeted this week, all players opting out in all sports, please believe the game will go on without you. This is a business, and don't you ever forget that. There's no one that's bigger than the game itself. Only the ref, umps, and officials are that important that you can't play without them. Not you. Hashtag truth. So Aaron, you are someone that would be slightly more susceptible if you happen to get the Rona. Yep. Um, You're not a professional athlete. Yep. True. Uh, What do you think about Dion's words? Well, first of all, I am a professional athlete when it comes to couch sitting. Oh, it's true. You are really good at it. Exactly. Um, I think Dion, though what he said is true, I think that, especially as a person of color, he's missing the fact that people of color have been more susceptible to this virus than anyone else. I also think he misses the fact that they're not worried about business. They're worried about their lives, which is way more important than a sport. Though many people may not agree, they're not opting out because... You know, because there's no, there's no, well, there is monetary gain in the fact that 
if the season ends midway through, I guess they still get paid. Like, it's just a smart decision to do. Like, Yeah, I mean, I read the story about, I think his name is Tredarius White that plays for the Bills. He just lost his father-in-law to it, and he opted out. I think that makes sense. A lot of these guys that are just having babies, newborns at home, or sick and dying parents, I think a lot of it makes sense. I think it's easier for him to say that on the other side where he is, too. You know, I agree. And, and again, it's just tone deaf, you know? Yeah. It's tone deaf and unsympathetic and uncaring. That's what it sounds like. So speaking of being a little tone deaf, there's something that's being talked a lot about right now, especially... Well, I say especially in the Christian circles, but I think it's kind of happening everywhere, this thing, cancel culture. Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville. He tweeted this week, gospel culture, quote, we do not condemn you, therefore break free from your sin. Basically, kindness leading to repentance. Cancel culture, quote, we condemn you totally, therefore live in unrecoverable shame and be dead to us. Contempt leading to heart assassination. And his final words were, gospel is greater than cancel. So, John B. Christ has been in the media a lot. He's a comedian that last year it became apparently more public that he was perhaps behaving a way that the church may not agree with, with women. And he took some time off. He went to rehab. He's back. He made a video that some people think was not enough. And then he came out with his first video that was about cancel culture in the grocery store. So people have been judging that. Rachel Hollis makes a lot of money off of coaching people, sort of. Um, or just using other people's words and calling them hers. Whatever. So she's, um, you know, announced that she's getting divorced because she thinks she can be her best or higher self untethered to her husband and family. And so people have talked about canceling Rachel Hollis because of that. So what do you take from all this? First of all, if we're talking about the gospel, then yes, this is true. But if we're talking about gospel culture, then no, this is not true. If anything, cancel culture learned what it is today or became what it is today based on watching Christian culture or gospel culture because in the church, if somebody does something wrong, generally they are shunned completely by that church, kicked out and never to be talked to again. They don't, they don't take people at their worst and say, hey, we understand, we still love you though. Like the love only happens when you're doing what the church thinks you're supposed to do. That's why I said, if it's the gospel, yes. Jesus wants you to love everybody as you love yourself. But do we do that in the church? No. How many people have gotten divorces or cheated or did anything and they've just been excommunicated? No one talks to them, you know. In fact, I think the one great thing I, I, I see right now, I have a couple of friends who don't have that mentality. They've seen people who have done things and they still talk to them and tell them that they love them and that God loves them. And that's what you're supposed to do. And they know who they are. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was listening to another podcast that I really like, and I really like the host, and they even put a newsletter out about the whole John Chris situation. 
And I get somewhat of the criticism that, you know, he, he never says that he's a Christian comedian. I mean, that's not what he claims to be, but he is. Um, you know, his whole bit kind of got started a lot with his Chick-fil-A stuff, and he performs in a lot of churches and pulpits and that kind of thing. So I do kind of think he creeps in that territory for sure. But a lot of people have said, well, he's a comedian. He's not a pastor. You shouldn't hold him to those standards. And, I mean, I can kind of see that, too, because we got a lot of people in the pulpits today that are just garbage human beings. Yes. And we haven't taken that trash out, but yet we want to take it out on John Christ. And the podcast that I was listening to that I'm a huge fan of was really going at him saying his video was an apology. I don't know. I mean, who are we to judge is kind of how I feel. But um, I do think when you're in the public light, you get more scrutiny and you've kind of welcomed that by being there. And I think that's the deal with Rachel Hollis. I'm so tired of the videos she's posting right now, just boohooing on her story by herself like you you brought this on like you decided you no longer wanted a family and a husband and all that like you left your kids and your home and your husband like we didn't do that (laughs) and i'm just tired of people and here's the deal with rachel hollis people are still going to buy this new book she's writing millions of people i heard today on a podcast that her book that came out two and a half years ago has never left the top 10 new york times bestsellers list Last week, guess how many copies it sold? Came out two and a half years ago. Uh, probably about mm, 500,000? 15,000 copies. 15,000, okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, thought it was going to be something ridiculous because you, you brought it. <laughs> so it's, it's like never going to change. People are still going to buy her words. Now, they could also buy the words of all the people that she steals from, but, you know, that's here and there. But they do invite this on themselves by being public figures. What is, what is that uh, term that your favorite podcast says? Oh, that's a hot take. <laughs> um, the thing about, the thing also, and this is the question I asked you a while back. You remember this. How can you, so cancel culture, they talk about holding people accountable. But no, it seems as if they're about destroying people. And the funny thing about it is a lot of the people who subscribe to cancel culture have done the things that they accuse these people of doing and trying to destroy them for. Yeah, I get annoyed with the whole picking and choosing what we cancel someone over. Like, with Rachel Hollis. Like, we're going to cancel Rachel Hollis because she's getting a divorce. Like, but we were fine with her stealing other people's work and calling it her own. Like, she should have been canceled from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, well, and the point I'm trying to get to is holding someone accountable cannot be done through the internet on a keyboard. It has to be people who are in that person's life and have a relationship with that person. You cannot hold, you can hold an elected official accountable by removing them from the seat because they are supposed to serve the people. But when it comes to people and their personal life, like unless they're committing a crime, are they a good comedian in the case of John Chris? I mean, I think so. I think he's freaking hilarious. Then that's, Whatever's happening in his life is his business. He never said he was a Christian comedian. Number two, about that, just because people try to put him in that vein doesn't mean that's what he is. Like, just because he got hired to do shows at churches, yeah, he could have turned it down. But if you're a struggling comedian trying to get your start, you don't turn anything down. 
Yeah. So the fact that he just because he did shows in a church makes him a Christian comedian is hilarious to me. So I'm going to give you two options, Aaron. Uh-oh. Okay. We've opened it up here. We could go one of two ways. Okay. Do you want to go politics first or church first? I mean, I'm always good with some church. Let's go church. Okay. Love Jesus. Laura Jean Tremaine uh, tweeted this week, Churches always focus on who they'll lose if they become, well, it should say, if they become LGBTQ plus affirming equals major donors, large families, longtime elders, don't have the imagination to wonder who they'll gain when they open their doors wider. Okay. <laughs> so, my thing is, it doesn't matter about who you'll gain or who you'll lose. Like, if you're looking at church politics from a from an income perspective, you're already not doing what you're supposed to do. It comes down to what is right and what is wrong. Much of what Jesus talked about dealt with the heart. And in your heart of hearts, if you believe that Jesus would be okay with you shunning the LGBTQ, um, that, that large group or large sect of America, you know, and you may say it's like one, two, three percent, but that's still millions of people. Do you think Jesus who wants to capture everyone's heart would be okay with that? And if you say yes, you may need to go back and read your Bible. That's a hot take. Well, it's spicy take. Yeah, a right. spicy take. Sorry. Um, so I'm just going to ask you one question. Okay. What did Jesus, this is a pop quiz. Okay. You're sweating, I can tell. I can't, uh, yeah. And when you put me on the spot, I, I don't remember anything. <laughs> what did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? Love everybody as you love yourself. And what are we still talking about in the church? I don't get it. Like, he, he said, this is the greatest commandment. But instead, we choose to say, oh, but what about this? And what about that? Well, can I be honest? And I'm just going to say it. A lot of people believe in capitalist Jesus, not real Jesus. Capitalist Jesus, who's okay. They're okay with certain things Jesus said up to a certain point. You know, as long as it doesn't infringe upon their, their wants, needs, and aspirations. You know? Mm -hmm. And... People try to spin Jesus into whatever they have prejudice against. Well, Jesus wouldn't be okay with that because, you know, you know, no. Like he said, love everybody. And the thing is, let me ask you a question, pop quiz. Okay. Is one sin greater than the other to God? Not what my Bible says. Okay. So your sin, if, if you want to look at it, and I don't even know if I view, I don't, think to a certain extent that being of a different sexual orientation is a sin but this is talking about people who believe that mm -hmm. if you believe that it is a sin then if all sins are equal any sin you do is equal to what they do so why are you treating it like it's this insurmountable thing and again I don't even necessarily think it's a, a sin. It's just speaking to those people who do view it as a sin. If it's a sin, then you getting drunk is a sin. You lying is a sin. 
you looking at somebody with lustful eyes, though you don't act on it, is a sin. Oh, well, that's because you're actually going off of what are in the Ten Commandments. That's where you got confused. Okay, my bad. Yeah. My bad. That might have been a little passy-aggressive. But um, my spicy take on this is, the Bible says, go into all the world and tell them about Jesus, right? That's what it says. Yeah. But I guess what the evangelical church and Southern Baptist Convention and people like that have taken from that is that only means take the gospel to foreign countries. It does not mean to the people in your own town and neighborhood. I guess that's what they've taken from Oh, because that's not a good optic. Go into the bad neighborhood and helping people who have no way. In fact, you know my feelings about this. The church should be the ones helping feeding the poor, helping the homeless, and all those things. But, you know, that's not as beautiful an optive as going to another country. Now, that being said, I'm not saying anything's wrong with going to another country. You're helping people. That's what matters to me. I can just wonder. I, well, I just wonder, I guess I should say. What Jesus will say to people when they get to heaven, and he's like, okay, did you tell people about me? And they're like, well, yeah, I went to Thailand and Cuba. And he's like, what about George down the street? Yeah, and what about your buddy next door who's gay? Oh, I didn't talk to them. That's a sin. I didn't didn't see that in the Ten Commandments I gave Moses. I said... Love everybody as you love yourself. It's very strange. It's very strange. I'm, you know... I mean, let's be honest. God's going to have a lot to say to me when I get there, and I'll do my answering... And you'll do yours, and that's fine. We'll all answer for something different. But, I mean, this is basic. Yeah. Like, well, it's the, same, it's the same thing about people along the border in cages. How can you profess to be a Christian when you're okay watching these people in horrible living conditions, especially during COVID now, with no running water and no amenities? But it's not your kid. You're fine with that, right? No. Oh. Not at all. Well, you went there, so let's get political. Um, <laughs> this actually is going to bridge a couple of things here. Well, first of all, let me go with Bree Newsom Bass. Um, you want to talk about somebody gets spicy on Twitter, but I love it. She tweeted this week, I promise you right now, with 100% theological confidence, that if you are citing the life, teachings, and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to uphold empire and oppression... You're doing it wrong no matter what century you're in. Did you hear that in the background? It was just the world burning down at her feet. because. No, I just heard a million people going, preach! (laughs) So, um, let's talk about the oppression part of it. Okay? From my point of privilege, I don't know a lot about oppression. Well, you've seen it since we've been married. Right. But if anybody can talk about it, I should give you the platform. Well, no. So, though, well, let's talk about it from a biblical perspective. During Jesus' time. You bring Jesus into this? Yes. Oh, heavens. During Jesus' time, who was the oppressed? The Jews. The okay. Gentiles? Okay. <laughs> who crucified Jesus? Was it the oppressed or was it the ones in power? ones in power okay the, the pharisees as we might say yes and he was the one he, he 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 was the one that questioned them and pulled them to task 
every time. So I don't understand when Jesus was actually seeking out an oppressed population, how you can use that to justify an empire in oppression. Like, it doesn't add up, but that goes back to that capitalist Jesus that people believe in. As long as it reaffirms the things that they care about, they're good with it. But the moment he asks you to do something beyond what you're comfortable with, then it's a problem. And the thing is, that's not just, that's everybody. Like, I feel like, and this is crazy, in typical human standards, but it's not crazy from, crazy from a Jesus perspective. I feel like I should be out there helping homeless people, bringing them into our house, getting them back to where they need to be, and then pushing them back out into the world. But the, human, like the, the person, the selfishness in me, is afraid for what will happen for our family. But Jesus isn't a safe choice. It isn't the safe choices. It's the hard choices that put your life and your well-being in danger to make something good happen in the world. You mean it goes past just tithing to the Lottie Moon offering? Everybody? Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. It goes past, past that. Okay. And it goes yes. back to the thing that I always say. Sometimes it's not about what you want. Sometimes it's about what needs to happen to make the world better. Well, I would never think that I could put words in Breen Bass's mouth because hers are always so spot on, but I'd have to think she means this from a political perspective of how many churches have made their political stances very known. Um, and I go back to the whole, like, why did we ever even have church and state? Well, we left England, or well, not we, but some folks left England. Yep. And they were tired of the Church of England. Yep. So they came here. Ride it, burn down a boat full of tea. Yeah. <laughs> if it had been coffee, it had been different. But So it really stems from that. They were tired of being controlled by the Church of England, right? Mm-hmm. So now, though, we're totally cool with pastors preaching the politics of Donald Trump from their pulpit. No, we're not okay with that. Oh, well, we're, yeah, I should say we are not okay with that, but America, the evangelical culture I is. wouldn't even say America or the evangelical culture is. I would say a subset of the culture is. Well, enough people to get the man elected and raise more money than Joe Biden. So yeah. there's that. But I'm with her. Like, I just don't get, when it comes to oppression, I think conservatives would tell you that they felt oppressed in other administrations because they didn't feel like their conservative values, that they intermingle with their biblical values, were protected. Whether that was abortion or gay marriage or any of those things, right? But I think that that's the problem. Like, to me, that seems to be a problem. You have to be able to separate your political views and values from your spiritual views and values. Question on that. So, you feel like your Christian values aren't going to be upheld by a Democratic elected president, right? Well, in playing the devil's advocate, I would assume that that would be their argument about life during like the Obama administration. So, instead, you want a guy who supposedly grabs women by their crotch Instead, because 
that screams moral, you know, mm, fortitude. Yeah. I'd want him in my pulpit, I, let me tell you. I mean, because, and I don't want to misquote him. <clears throat> Are we going to break out the P word on the podcast? No. Okay. No. Just checking. But if I remember correctly, when he was asked about how he prayed, he said, and I think this is what he said. Y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't pray. I just strive to do better tomorrow. And again, I asked well, the question. He would, he would prefer to have himself standing in front of a church holding a Bible up and then tear gas everyone in the public. Okay. In the same <laughs> proximity. Ooh, there's some heat coming off of me. <laughs> Should I just start screaming out bars? Every time you say something, <laughs> just bars. Um... And in case you don't know, bars is basically a reference to when a artist, rapper, or otherwise says a verse or two that is epic. You okay. just you just go bars. So use that in your regular life from now. Just just when somebody says something epic, just go bars. But unless <laughs> you're over like forty, then it's gonna be a little awkward. No, no, it's not awkward then either. It's just just bars. And I will say. That's our new thing now. No more, we're not going to say spicy take. I'm just going to be like, bars. Like, oh, so spicy. It hurts. Well, speaking of spicy. Uh-oh. Jonathan Merritt, who I love and would hope one day can get on the podcast, um, tweeted about a little incident that got big in the evangelical world this week. He tweeted, anyone who thinks Jerry Falwell Jr. just got, quote, fired, doesn't understand how Liberty University or white evangelicalism, for that matter, operates. He'll be back. So, if you don't know who Jerry Falwell Jr. is, he is the president of Liberty University. His father, Jerry Falwell Sr., started the school. And if you don't know what Liberty University is, it's the largest Christian university in the U.S. Um, and this past week, Jerry was out on his yacht, as, you know, any other... Christian University president would be and they had apparently a white trash party which I, there's so many things that I could stop on but we'll just keep going and he posted a picture with his pants unzipped and his wife's assistant and her pants unzipped posing so he was asked by the board of trustees at Liberty to take an indefinite leave of absence and there were many who thought, good, he's been fired. Because over the past five years or so, there's been about 486,000 things he should have been fired for. But um, that's not what this means. It's a leave of absence. And it's to save face and to keep donor money. And I'm with Jonathan. If you think that he's done at Liberty, you're crazy. They'll never get rid of him. He'll leave on his own if he ever does. Or they'll bury him there like they did his dad. But I think this is a good point when he mentions that, or we don't understand how white evangelicalism works either. And I think that's true. Um, I think it's disgusting. I can't stand Jerry Falwell. When this happened, um, LB, that used to be on the podcast with us, texted me or FaceTimed me or something and said, I have to know what you think. Just because she knows, I just can't stand him. I just don't understand having that lack of morality in leadership. But he's also besties with the president so I don't know really what to expect but you are not a part of white evangelicalism you never have been you've been a part of the evangelical church though 
in the past. I mean, I could have been a part of white evangelicalism. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> what does this make you think about the church from your perspective? I mean, I think he's right. I, I mean, look at all of the people who have done infractions in the church, like molestation, rape, things like that. They've just been moved to another church. Yeah. So he's not wrong, you know? Like, there's a lady I follow on Twitter. I can't remember her name exactly. But she basically reports on these things, not because she wants fame or anything like that, but because she was the victim of yeah. one of these situations. And every time I see her Twitter, her Twitter post, it's the fact that these pastors who have done these actions have been just moved to another church. And it's been swept under the rug. Yep. And they've paid off the people who were hurt. And, and But let me ask you this. If this is the same evangelical group that hires a man to be the president who grabs people by their, their crotch, supposedly, and who doesn't pray, what do you expect? Because I don't expect anything. Well, I mean, I think it's a valid point. We'll see what happens. Um, I think one of the ways in which I question, like, why do you, what do you expect and why do you expect something better or a wiser choice from them is a lot about how they've handled the race issues in the country. And um, so that's where we're going to go now. And um, Ariana Davis, who's one of the um, publishers at Oprah's O Magazine, tweeted this week something that Oprah has done in the past week. And I, I don't know how I feel about Oprah anymore. I mean, but... I know how I feel about what she's done that we're about to talk about, and I feel really good about it and thankful for it. Um, Ariana posted, um, Our team here at Oprah Magazine has placed 26 billboards, one for every year of Breonna Taylor's life around her hometown city of Louisville. We demand that the officers involved in her murder are arrested and charged. Hashtag Breonna Taylor. So Breonna Taylor has been dead now for close to 200 days, if not over that now. I should have looked, but... It's probably very close, if not. Um, her murderers are still doing their thing outside of the prison system. Completely innocent in the eyes of the legal system right now. Um, and yet her name's no longer trending, and it's not on everyone's social media. And I think that's what happens, you know? People move on. I mean, we went on from Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, and that took up a lot of space on the interwebs. But she was still murdered in her own home, in her own bed, asleep. <laughs> like, one of the greatest tragedies that I can think of. And so I appreciate what Oprah is doing. I think if more celebrities put their money where their mouth is, things could possibly change. I don't know. But what do you think about just that whole situation? Not even just Oprah, but... You know, before um, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and a host of other people, before I saw the... Before I saw the protests before I saw the backlash of the protest, in all honesty, like, people of color especially 
We're tired. We're tired of seeing this. We're numb at this point. Because what generally happens is no one gets punished. No one's held accountable. These things just happen and people go on moving. So then when I saw the protest and rioting and will remind me, I'm going to come back to the rioting in a little bit. Um, it actually gave me hope. When I saw people actually caring that weren't black, people calling their own parents out on social media that weren't black, you know, obviously. <laughs> um, it gave me hope that I haven't had for these types of situations. Then the backlash of all lives matter, blue lives matter. Like, in what realm of normal can you not see that people of color are treated differently based on the color of their skin? What was that family in Colorado? All of them handcuffed, including a nine-year-old girl? Six-year-old. Six-year-old girl, face down. Why? Because they thought that her family's car fit the description of someone who had just stolen a car. Even though when they pulled them over and realized it wasn't them, they still... And even if it had been, the six-year-old deserved to be in handcuffs on the ground? Like, I don't get it. But it's the same people that would argue that the circumstances around George Floyd's murder, which I do still call a murder, were necessitated. That he resisted arrest. That he uh, had drugs in his system. Does that literally means to some people that he deserved to die? Yeah, yeah, and and no and, matter what he did, it doesn't have to cost his life. I think the thing that bothers me about that is, it's and honestly, I read a Facebook post specifically about this. It's the fact that we have to justify our living in most situations. I read a Facebook post posted by doctors and also, uh, what's his name? The scientist guy. Um, Bill Nye, the science guy? No, 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 no. The uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Neil deGrasse Tyson. His father was had a stroke and was laying there dying and people were indifferent about his life. The moment he came in and put plaques and showed pictures on the wall of him giving... Um, speeches and things like that, everybody started taking um, a look at him and caring about him living. Another doctor, an Asian doctor, was talking about when she came out to, and I don't, she said she was Asian, I don't know why that mattered, but (laughs) she said she was Asian in the post. And she walked out to tell this family how how their, their father was doing. He had contracted COVID. Instead of listening to her and asking questions about his diagnosis, they instantly started talking to them about how he was a pillar of the community, how he did all these things, how he was in this profession, because they were worried he wouldn't get the same amount of service as a typical person. And she talked about how that broke her. And that's the thing people don't realize. Number one, your, your, your situation with police officers and people in that in that regard is not the same as everyone else's. 
So stop looking at situations as if this is what happens with me typically. Throw that out the window. Yeah. Number two, why whenever a crime or uh, action, especially when it involves police, happens against a person of color, do we have to defend that person of color? It doesn't happen to any other person. We always have to defend them. Like, in fact, Botham Jean, yeah. like, the mo- he was killed in his own home. Well, they found marijuana and, not, like, why does that matter? Yeah. She wasn't on duty. Yeah. She wasn't there for criminal reasons. Yeah. Why do we constantly have to justify our living? And the funny thing is, and I want to go back to an earlier post about using the Bible to justify empires in oppression. Mm-hmm. I had a high school friend that I ended up educating on such a thing. He believed that black people were enslaved due to Moses' child, the one that laughed at his nakedness. He was told that he was going to be a servant to his brothers. Mm-hmm. He thought that meant slavery. That's why black people were enslaved. They're part of his line. And that's why slavery was okay. Because the Bible prophesized it. Yeah. Like, does that even make sense? But I think we really need to take a look at the truth about how people of color, of all colors, are treated and take ourselves out of the situation take ourselves out of how we see the situation and just look at the truth. You know? Yeah. Well, that's one of the other tweets is from Carlos Whitaker, um, who tweeted, if a black friend shares with you their reality of dealing with racism in America, the appropriate response and only response should be, I believe you. So the thing about that, if a person of color is telling you their situation that means to some extent they trust you because I would never tell my situation to somebody I didn't trust I would never tell the the times that I was pulled over wrongfully by police officers I wouldn't tell them that because how can I if I don't trust you what makes me think that you will sympathize or empathize with me yeah you know and the thing is you know, before everybody gets up in arms, there are good police officers. No one's saying that there aren't. But let's be real. When we say one bad apple, the saying is one bad apple spoils the bunch. These bad police officers are training other police officers' bad behavior. So let's just get that out of the way now. No one's saying there aren't good cops. No one's saying that good cops don't matter. But the bad cops are killing people that don't necessarily deserve to die. And though you may want to justify it with little facts and tidbits about them, it still doesn't make it okay. Would you be okay with your son son or daughter dying in an altercation with police officers just because the police officer felt like he needed to put a knee on their back or chest and stop them from breathing? Would you be okay with that with your kid? If the answer is no, then it's not right ever. 
Yeah, so Joe Biden tweeted this week, earlier today, I made some comments about diversity in the African-American and Latino communities that I want to clarify. In no way did I mean to suggest that African-American, that the African-American community is a monolith, not by identity, not on issues, not at all. So obviously Joe Biden's known for his gaffes and his commentary. He's, um, I don't like the whole commentary that he's, got cognitive issues or he's senile. I just, I don't like that because this man's been in politics for over 50 years and he's been doing it since then. So like, let's not all just pretend that he's suddenly old and senile. That's crazy. But he does make some offensive comments and... Oh, he just called somebody a dog-faced, po- lying dog-faced <laughs> pony soldier. You know, that's, what's offensive about that? But, you know, people like to sweep it under the rug because they call him Uncle Joe. You know, everybody has that crazy uncle that says things. But, you know, with the political landscape, we're, gosh, less than 100 days probably from the election. We've got President Trump. We've got Joe Biden. We've got Kanye, who has now come out and said that he's only running to take away the black votes from Joe Biden. Wait, what? Yeah, where have you been, man? You said you like to be caught off guard. So, uh, yeah. So, as a black man and a voter, how did these comments make you feel in light of the comments Donald Trump makes? And where does this leave you? Okay. I'm not saying you have to tell us how you're going to vote. I'm not. uh, I don't care. I mean, I don't mind telling people whatever. So, honestly, I look at this situation as a person of color. I don't think either Donald Trump or Joe Biden are for people of color. I don't think that they, they may care to a certain extent, but I don't think that they're, perfect example. The moment, and this may be wrong, but this is the way I took it. The moment, the moment Donald Trump found out that the black community was being affected by COVID more than anybody, let's get back to work. When he doesn't even think about that, the fact that not all, but a large majority of the people who are in what's the position that they call it, uh, necessary positions, what's oh, the essential workers, essential workers are people of color, yeah, like and they're affected by this three times more. Which some of that goes back to levels of treatment in hospitals because you may get biased treatment based on your color. Hence the reason the Asian doctor that I talked about earlier said that. It broke her heart. Like, I I don't expect either one of them to fix anything for people of color, in all honesty. Right. And if you're expecting them to fix people's heart, you're, you're, you're wrong in the first place. Like, their job is to make the country run more efficiently. And so, like, well, speaking I, of coronavirus, I mean, it is a hoax, clearly, right? Oh, yeah, you know, millions of people died. It's a hoax. <laughs> it's fine. Our Eric Thomas, who's been here on the podcast, tweeted um, that a club in Baltimore is advertising a foam party this weekend because it's okay. It's antibacterial foam. Clean hands, foam lungs, can't lose. Um, I just can't with people that want to act like this is a hoax I get it like I have friends that have quarantined I have friends that have not quarantined friends that wear masks friends that don't 
I mean, I don't think anybody knows what's right or wrong anymore. We just do the oh, best no, we can. No, they know what's right. They just choose not to. Because evidently, like, the thing that bothers me, and sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, go ahead. The thing that bothers me is people calling the government asking them or mandating that they need to wear a mask oppression. <laughs> like, yeah. did they put chains on your arms and your feet? Were your civil liberties stripped? You could still go wherever you wanted to. Like, how is that oppression? Like, and I think with people of color here, people of non-color say, they're oppressing me. They're tyrants. It's like, I, I have to, I'm mandated to wear a mask, but I have to be afraid of wearing a mask in certain establishments because I may be seen as a criminal and shot. But you're oppressed. Come on, man. This is stupid. This is just stupid. <laughs> oh my God. It's just, just. Well, I'm glad you don't have any feelings about anything because this has been a slow show. With I know, I know. And it's just, I, I, I'm, I'm at my breaking point with people in this whole mask thing. Like every other country that has followed the mandates has low to zero numbers. Low to zero. We're the only country, well, one of the few countries that's been ridiculous about this and we're still dealing with it. Like, if you, if, if people would just do what they're supposed to, this would have been done, our kids would be back in school, and everything would be fine. No. But no, it infringes upon our civil liberty. How? Oh, it, it's messing with my individualism. And it's like, at what point does your individualism outweigh the safety of the country? Yeah. Just, just foolishness. Well, speaking of something that is what I think should be more of a hot topic right now, um, as we do at the end of every episode, we highlight the work of an organization who's doing good in the world. And today's organization is called Operation Underground Railroad which was founded in 2013. Um, obviously, the Underground Railroad was a network of secret routes and safe houses established in the United States during the early to mid-19th century that were used to help African-American slaves escape to free states in Canada with the aid of abolitionists and allies who were sympathetic to their cause. But this is a different twist. So the Operation Underground Railroad promise is to the children who we pray for daily, we say, your long night is coming to an end. Hold on, we are on our way. And to those captors and perpetrators, even you monsters who dare offend God's precious children, we declare to you, be afraid, we are coming for you. So this organization has, um, since 2013, gathered the world's experts in extraction operations and anti-child trafficking efforts to uh, bring an end to child slavery. Their team consists of former CIA and past and current uh, law enforcement. And they are focused on uh, six different things. They assess the feasibility of a rescue. They research the location. They design a strategy. They take action. They recover the children, they arrest, uh, try, and convict the perpetrators. Uh, they're not a government agency. 
They're a nonprofit 501c3 that relies 100% on donations to save these kids. Um, and they do offer aftercare for these kids once they've been rescued. And um, if you want to check out more about their organization, you can go to ourrescue.org. That wraps it up. Thanks for tuning in today. <laughs>